You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 56, The Second Sino-Japanese War, Part 7, Sinking Deeper. This week, a big thank you goes out to Kale, Vasily, and Gruck for choosing to support the podcast over on Patreon. If you would like to find out more information about supporting the show, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. When 1937 ended, the overall territory controlled by Japan within China had massively expanded when compared with the beginning of the year. Shanghai, Nanking, and all the territory in between had fallen into their hands. In northern China, they'd taken control of five of the most northern provinces, and they would then create the Chinese People's Federated Government, which much like the government in Manchukuo, was technically a Chinese government, but one wholly controlled by the Japanese. As new territory was brought under the control of Tokyo, there were plans put in place to begin to take advantage of that territory as quickly as possible. The natural resources were very valuable to the ongoing preparations for war, although they came at a large and growing price. Japanese expansion was based around the idea that eventually the Chinese would be forced to come to the negotiating table and to end the war. At that point, at least in theory, the war would be over and the Japanese would be able to fully devote their resources of the new territories to prepare for future conflicts, especially those that were just kind of expected to occur against the Soviet Union and even the United States. But what if the Chinese did not surrender, did not want to begin negotiations? That's a very good question, and one that Tokyo did not have a good answer for. During this episode, we will discuss the Japanese campaigns after the capture of Nanking as well as the future course of the fighting in China. This future course will be revisited in later episodes, but a brief discussion now is warranted due to its effects on other Japanese decision-making. This will also be our final episode on events in China, at least for a while, and it also marks the last episode of Season 1 of the podcast. We will do a bit of a season overview today, and then also talk about what comes next. After the fall of Nanking, the Japanese military was presented with a problem. Chang and the nationalist government and a good portion of the troops that had been defending against them in Shanghai and Nanking had been able to successfully retreat before Nanking fell. They were then joined by fresh formations that had not been involved in earlier fighting. They were also ready for the fight to continue. Japan, in growing political isolation due to the events that were happening in China, had few options available to them. They could in some ways give up, retreat from some or all the territory that they had gained during 1937, and then try to make peace. 
This was unacceptable and did not solve one of the major problems that the Japanese thought they had, which was that in the coming war with the Soviet Union, an independent and strong China would be a serious threat. With that option rejected, the only other real option was to simply continue the attack to go deeper into Chinese territory to capture more of it and hope that this would be sort of a way to greatly shift the overall structure of the war and hopefully to end it. Maybe it would result in the collapse of the Chiang government, which would be replaced by one more open to negotiations. Maybe it would cause infighting among the Chinese, maybe a breakdown in the united front that was presented by the nationalists and the communists. But for any of that to happen, they needed to find a way to put more pressure on the Chinese government and military. This was seen as the only real option, and so the planning for the next military campaigns started. When these efforts would begin, they would come from a few different directions. Starting with northern China, the North China Army would begin to once again move south. In March 1938, they would launch another offensive from Shandong province with the goal of pushing all the way south to the Yellow River. With the capture of the Hushchao in the far north of the Kingsu province, the objective. They would advance on this objective in three different columns against roughly 200,000 Chinese defenders who were in the area. They would then encounter a serious roadblock at the city of Taizerhong. At Taizerhong, the attacking Japanese troops would come head to head with some of the best units that were still in the Chinese army. And over the course of two weeks of fighting, the Japanese 5th and 10th divisions and the Chinese 20th and 2nd Army groups would slug it out. The Japanese would suffer thousands of casualties and it would be one of the few instances during this early stage of the war where a Japanese attack was stopped completely cold by Chinese troops over a lengthy period of time. But even this resolute and successful defense could only slow down the Japanese advances, and on other areas of the front their advances would be successful and Hus Chao would fall into Japanese hands. After this attack, even though it had not been completely successful, the North China Army would set its sights even higher, and during the first week of April, they would launch a campaign designed to trap and destroy 50 Chinese divisions by attacking on two axes that would meet at Zuzhao. In this attack, they would capture Zuzhao, but they would not achieve their greater goal of trapping the Chinese troops who were able to escape. This pattern would repeat itself several times. The Japanese would launch an attack designed to surround a group of Chinese units. They would capture their territorial objectives, but the Chinese units would be able to escape. At the same time, the Japanese, in pushing their troops forward for the encirclement, would very rapidly outpace their ability to supply their troops, and those at the front of the encirclement efforts would suffer casualties not just from enemy action, but also just from a simple lack of logistical support and supplies. While the attacks were happening in the north, the nationalist government, which had fled Nanking, set up a new area of government in Wuhan. They would have two million troops available in the province to be used both for the defense of Wuhan itself and to mount large counterattacks if the opportunity to do so presented itself. Japanese attacks in the north had been designed to eventually put greater pressure on Wuhan from the north, and after they crossed the Yellow River, they would begin to push west in the hopes of capturing Zhengzhou, an important rail center which would be the staging point for the attack into Wuhan. It was in the face of these advances that Chang would order the Yellow River dikes to be breached. The Yellow River had been flooding since basically the beginning of time, and they were often incredibly destructive floods. If you look at Chinese history, there's so many floods that kill so many people. The dikes had helped control the river, but now they were being purposefully destroyed. 
This move would cause massive flooding along the river, flooding that would eventually spread to three different provinces. The consequences would be disastrous, with up to 900,000 Chinese civilians dying due to the flooding and its aftermath, and almost 4 million forced to become refugees due to the loss of their homes. It was a desperate move that was designed to halt the Japanese attacks towards Wuhan, and it was mostly a failure. It did delay the planned Japanese attacks for a short period of time, but it in no way stopped them. And in fact, the overextended Japanese units were probably going to have to pause for a bit anyway to allow them to rest and resupply. While the Battle of Shanghai had been the site of a sacrifice for some of the best trained and equipped Chinese units, the fighting and the defense of Wuhan and its surrounding areas would see the Chinese suffer a million casualties, and it would make it the place where a huge portion of the nationalist forces would meet their end. And to kind of put it in perspective, there would be more losses in the defense of Wuhan than for the next several years of the Second Sino-Japanese War combined. Even with this sacrifice, they would eventually be defeated and the government would be forced to once again evacuate, this time to Chongqing in the Sichuan province. Japanese casualties were also very high, so high that it would force them to make changes to how they were prosecuting the war. Most importantly, they would give up on chasing down the nationalist government, and when Chang and the nationalists escaped to Sichuan, they did not follow. On the Chinese side, it would also force some serious changes. Beyond the staggering loss of life, the defense of Wuhan would also see a shift in the views of the communists, with some of the leading communist voices who had advocated for a united front to work with Chang being usurped by Mao Zedong and the more hardline anti-collaborationists. The nationalists would also be forced to shift strategies and would start to avoid large battles and, and tests of strength with the Japanese in hopes of prolonging the war at a far lighter cost. They would reduce the number of troops that were even in the field to, to be used in such battles, while pulling back about a third of their troops for further training. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
While the Japanese attacks were occurring in and around Wuhan, another amphibious operation would be launched against Guangzhou in southern China near Hong Kong. This landing, combined with several other amphibious operations along the China coast, were designed to cut off the Chinese from the sea and any help or supplies that may be received from allies overseas. Guangzhou would be captured on October 21st, looking further ahead to events we will revisit in the future. During 1939, the Japanese would continue to expand their areas under their control in southern China. They would take several major cities like Nanchang, the island of Henan, and various provinces, and they would also launch an operation against Changsha, the capital of Hunan. Some of these efforts were designed to weaken the Chinese directly, while others were launched to reduce the ability of the Chinese to continue the war into the future. For example, along with the landings on the coast, there would be a push into the southern province of Guangxi in the hopes of cutting off supplies that were being imported from French Indochina. While many of these attacks were successful, they carried with them consequences for the Japanese military, consequences that would be felt far into the future years of war. When looking at the efforts of the war in China on the Japanese military, we first need to revisit what the expectations were when the fighting started. During July 1937, when the fighting had started in northern China and then spread to Shanghai, the general assumption in Tokyo was that they would need to commit roughly three extra divisions of troops from the home islands, and they would need those troops for only about three months, and then everything would be fine. Just six months later, they were still deep in the fighting, even though vast swaths of territory, including Shanghai, Nanking, and several northern capitals had been captured. Sixteen additional divisions had been sent to China, about 700,000 troops, and there was also no real end in sight to the fighting. Because the war was still not won, additional preparations were being made during 1938, with 20 more divisions preparing to join the fight, and then all of this ballooned the cost of the Chinese adventure, from the first appropriation of, you know, about 100 million yen to 2.5 billion. Even this vastly larger army would prove to be insufficient, And by 1939, the Japanese had taken over hundreds of thousands of square kilometers of territory, most of it being rural, but also some large cities in there. Because of the large tracts of territory and their garrison requirements, for the large attacks during 1938, the Japanese would never be able to bring together enough troops with enough mobility to allow them to strike a truly decisive blow. They kept pouring in more troops, they kept taking more territory, and so more troops were needed just to garrison the territory instead of attack out of it. It is perhaps debatable whether or not such decisive blows that they were trying to hit were were even possible, at least as long as Chang and the Chinese leaders accepted that their best course of action was to retreat and survive in the face of continued Japanese aggression. While the Chinese campaigns were quickly consuming men and money, it was also starting to have drastic effects on the wider Japanese rearmament efforts. For many Japanese officers, the real threat was not China. China was a threat and had to be handled, but this was strictly to remove them as a participant in a future war with the Soviet Union or the United States. And when it came to planning for that future war, the actually important war in their minds, the war in China was a disaster. The Japanese economy would have had issues meeting the ambitious military expansion plans that were in place in the late 1930s under the best of circumstances. Having an ongoing war with China was not included in those best of circumstances. And during 1937, there would already be munitions shortages in China, and additional production had to be allocated to munitions instead of other items. 
The first area to be sacrificed was consumer production, and the military would request the activation of the 1918 Munitions Mobilization Law. This gave the military absolute priority when it came to imported goods, and any other items, especially anything that would be used for civilian goods, were greatly deprioritized in favor of the necessary raw materials for military production. There was an understanding that such control and such restrictions were not long-term answers, but the belief was that they would only be, you know, short-term sacrifices until the war in China was won. Certain foreign imports were expanded greatly, especially around oil from the United States. Units in China were already running out of fuel during 1937, and it would only get worse as operations expanded, and so the only real option was to increase oil imports. This increase in imports greatly strained available currency reserves, and with so many items needing to be imported in greater numbers and the curtailment of any production outside of military goods, foreign exchange reserves were rapidly depleted. There was also the potential political reaction from the United States, with the worst case being an oil embargo, which might bring the Japanese military to a rapid halt. It was a necessary risk, and it would eventually not pay off in later years, but in 1938 and 1939, it did not happen. In regards to the possible war with the Soviet Union, the Sino-Japanese War was seen to greatly reduce the ability of the Japanese army to meet any Soviet aggression, or to launch any offensive campaigns should they be required. Rearmament and the resupply of the forces in Manchuria was greatly curtailed and many of the best air units were sent south. By the end of 1937, there were just six divisions in Manchuria, and with many more Soviet divisions just across the border. The vast gulf between Soviet and Japanese military capabilities was not really appreciated though at this time, and the events of 1939 and the fighting around Nomanhan, which would turn into a complete debacle for the Japanese army, would come as a rude awakening. Because of many of these issues, during 1939 there would be a subtle shift in Japanese policies in China which would persist for the next several years. There would no longer be massive offensives, if only because they were too costly in terms of men and materiel. Instead, the focus would be on solidifying Japanese control over the areas that had already been captured. Part of this meant dealing with the various armed groups in and around the territory, which would continue to pester and harass the Japanese for years. This would lead to several punitive expeditions, which were sent out into communist and nationalist-controlled territory, not to actually capture that territory, but instead simply to kill and destroy everything in their path. Along with this would be a bombing campaign targeted at various areas of nationalist strength, with both the Japanese army and navy combining to bomb a variety of areas. These strategic bombing campaigns targeted Chinese areas in northern China, as well as areas in Sichuan, where the nationalist government had retreated to. These policies were designed to try and reduce the drain on the Japanese army and economy to allow them to properly prepare for the coming war with the Soviet Union which the army believed would happen quite soon. All of this would of course change with the German invasion of the Soviet Union and then the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but of course those stories are for a different day. And with that, we arrive at the end of Season 1. The goal of this season was to start laying the groundwork for Season 2 and the approach of the war. The 1930s were a period of escalating tension around Europe and the world. The post-war period of peace was shattered, by the economic difficulties of the early 1930s. This, when combined with the rise of more radical political groups around the world, caused the post-war structures of peace to rapidly fall apart. The League of Nations would prove to be powerless to hinder Italian aggression in Ethiopia. The rise of Hitler and the Nazi party would 
presaged their rejection of the Versailles Treaty, with both rearmaments started and the reoccupation of the Rhineland. The Spanish Civil War, a conflict revolving around the same political disagreements that were also happening at the national level around Europe, had started and was ongoing, with the support from other nations for both sides. In China, the Japanese attacks were pushing them deeper and deeper into fighting China, pushing their economy and a military to the limit. This would make the Japanese economy incredibly sensitive to any economic restrictions from abroad and force Japanese military and political leaders into finding a way to solve their economic problems, with the only solution being expansion. So we should end today with a discussion of what's coming up in Season 2, which will start in late July, about five weeks from now. Season 2 will put us back onto what might be considered the typical track towards the Second World War. We'll start with the Anschluss and then discuss 1930s France and the Munich Crisis. Then we'll jump over to Asia to talk about the fighting in Nomanhan between the Soviet Union and the Japanese. Then we will spend some number of episodes just looking at a more general set of military topics around Europe and the world. What did people expect a war to look like? How were they preparing both technologically and theoretically? What was the overall state of the various militaries that were rapidly going to find themselves at war? This will set us up to discuss the last months of peace before making our way into Poland in September 1939. The plan is to end Season 2 with the Polish campaign, which will probably take more than a few episodes. Probably a lot more than a few. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you will continue this journey with me in a couple weeks.